and we are going to get back into our study on the life of Jesus. We've taken a couple of weeks off from it, but last time we dug into this, we met a man named Nicodemus. We learned about a man named Nicodemus who was the most prominent religious teacher in the entire nation of Israel at the time. He meets Jesus. Jesus explains to him that he must be born again. And if you want to know what that means, you can go listen online on the website when we talked about that last time. But today we're going to see what happens when the spotlight in Israel begins to shift from John the Baptist onto Jesus. And we're going to see John confronted with a situation that we all face one way or another every single day. We all face the decision moment to moment, day to day, whether we're going to build our kingdom or God's kingdom. And as you're thinking through a new year and some changes or or resolutions you'd like to make, one of the things you're going to decide, even as you put your focus on the year 2014, is you're going to decide whether this is going to be a year of focusing on your kingdom Or a year focusing on God's kingdom. Our will is often at war with God's will for our lives. I don't know if you've noticed this. Maybe it's just me. But I won't ask you to raise your hand if that's you. Because it's actually all of us. Every single day. Every single day. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. Your will is at war with God's will. Every day. Let's dive into our study. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 22. Verse 22. It says this, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. So Jesus and his partially assembled crew, because if you remember, he hasn't actually chosen the final 12 disciples, just about five of them at this point. They go with him into the rural areas of Judea, the small towns, the farm country, and stay there for a while. In the next chapter, John chapter 4, it'll actually tell us that Jesus doesn't personally baptize anybody. So we know that his disciples are doing the actual baptisms under Jesus' instructions. Verse 23, it says, Now John... John the Baptist also was baptizing in Enon near Salim. And I'm going to want you to underline this. Because there was much water there. You're going to underline because there was much water there. We'll come back to that. And they, various people, came and were baptized. I love this little insight into why John the Baptist baptizes in this place called Enon. It wasn't because he received a vision from the Lord saying, Go to Enon. It wasn't because somebody else came to him and said, I have a word from God for you. It's Enon. You need to go there. It wasn't because he had a visitation from an angel. We're told he went there. Why? Because there was much water there. It's a good place to do baptisms. And we're so quick to forget that one of the greatest blessings of walking with Jesus is that the Holy Spirit is giving us the mind of Christ, the Bible says. As we walk with Jesus, the Holy Spirit is literally changing our mind, changing the way we think to think and become more like Jesus. We're going through life under his leadership and our very thinking is being shaped by him. That means the closer to God we get, the more wisdom we have and the more we can trust our decision making. Let me be honest, if you're far from God, you shouldn't trust your decision making. If you think you're wise and you're far from God, that's just one more indication that you shouldn't trust your decision making because you're not thinking clearly. But when you walk with God, you can trust even your decision making because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. St. Augustine said it really well. This is what he said. 
It's on your outlines. He said, love God with all of your heart and do whatever you please. Love God with all of your heart and do whatever you please and do whatever you want. Because if you love God with all of your heart, you're going to want to do things that line up with the heart of God. It's naturally going to happen because the way you think is even going to begin to change. So put this on your outline. When you're led by God, God leads your thoughts. When you're led by God, God leads your thoughts, even when it doesn't feel spiritual. And I put that on there because all of us every day face decisions and situations where we think, I I don't have the opportunity to say, okay, stay right there. I'm just going to go into the stairwell and pray for a minute. Come back. We're going to pick this right up and keep going. You don't always have that opportunity moment to moment day to day, when, you, when you're on the phone with somebody from an insurance company, you're at a job interview. It's awkward if you pray in tongues. You shouldn't do that in your job interview, okay? But moment to moment, the Holy Spirit, if you're walking with God, is guiding even your decision making. And you can have confidence in that, confidence. And some of us, even in this room today, you just have no confidence in the fact that God is with you. You're walking with God. But there's no confidence because you feel like you didn't get to fast and pray for 30 minutes before every decision you make. God is with you when you're walking with him. The Holy Spirit is with you in your business, in your relationships, in your thinking. He's with you. Have confidence in the fact that he's with you. He's not out to mess you over by saying, you forgot to pray. I only had 0.3 seconds. Sorry, not my problem. It's not how God works. He's with you. He's with you. You can have confidence when you walk with him. Verse 24, it says, For John, John the Baptist, had not yet been thrown into prison. And we're going to discover that's going to happen very shortly. Verse 25, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. We don't really know what the disagreement was, but from the verse that's going to come next, it becomes pretty clear that what's happening is John's baptizing very close to where Jesus is in Enon, and John's disciples are going to some, some Jews, and they're saying, hey, you know, you've you got to be baptized by John. And they're saying, no, it's cool. We've been baptized by Jesus' disciples. And John's disciples are saying, well, that's, that doesn't count. You need to be, you need to be baptized by John and, and, and us. And they're having this dispute, John's disciples and several of the other Jews in the area. It says in verse 26, And they, John's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, they're speaking about Jesus, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. So before Jesus really kicks off his ministry, John the Baptist in the, in the few years before that is the ministry in Israel. He's the ministry. He's doing ministry hours away from Jerusalem. People are making the walk just to hear this guy teach because the power of God and the Holy Spirit is on John the Baptist. Everybody recognizes this guy has come from God. You know, he's the rebel voice speaking truth in the wilderness. Prominent, prominent ministry. Everybody's talking about him. And now everybody's beginning to move over to Jesus. And the numbers are starting to dwindle in John's ministry. And so John's disciples are, are growing concerned because the ministry is starting to die out. 
John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. Even though you're reading about him in the New Testament, Jesus will actually identify him as the last Old Testament prophet. John marks the end of the Old Testament, the era before Jesus. As John's ministry closes, Jesus' begins. That's really the dividing line between the Old Testament, everything that's old, and everything that is new. Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the natural progression. He didn't come to destroy that, to burn it, to make it seem insignificant. He came to be the natural progression of that, the next step. But I want you to understand that what's going on here is not a small deal. This is a massive shift taking place, especially to the Jews of the day. This is an entire new way of thinking, and it's coming to a close right before their eyes. And they're freaking out a little bit about this. We're going to find out from the text that, that people received John the Baptist as a prophet, but they didn't really buy into what he was saying about Jesus. They believed he was a prophet, he was from God, but they didn't really believe what John said about Jesus. And so you've got to understand this in order to understand what makes John's response so profound. This is John the Baptist putting everything into a, a Jesus-centered perspective. In verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. John's first point is, and this is on your outline, it all belongs to Jesus. It all belongs to Jesus. He's, he's saying, guys, this ministry I have, all the people we've baptized, the influence we've had, it's all been given to us by God. We don't own any of this. It doesn't even belong to us. We do this when we say things like, you know, I've, I've worked really hard. I've worked really hard. I deserve to relax. I don't, I don't need to serve anybody. I've, I've worked really hard. I, I, I get to decide what I do with my resources. Thank you very much. I, I, need, I need to be happy. This person likes me. They, they might not be a God-honoring person, but, but I, I get to decide who I, who I spend my life with. That's, that's my decision. The perspective John gives is, is he, says, he says, listen, listen. Even the ability to acquire knowledge and skill comes from God. Don't kid yourself and say, I, I went to university, I learned all this. He says, you, you couldn't learn anything unless God gave you the ability to learn. You have no talent unless God gives it to you. No abilities unless God gives it to you. You don't even know how to, how to have a relationship unless God gives you some insight. You don't have anything without God. John says, you, you've got nothing unless God gives it to you. It all belongs to him. So, 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 so he starts by telling his disciples, listen, none of this belongs to us. Let, let's get that straight right from the get-go. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Anything in your life and my life that is good comes from God. Anything that's good comes from God. Here's the amazing flip side of that. Anything negative in your life is the result of our fall and our rejection of God. Everything good comes from God. And God is so gracious. He says, I'll even redeem the bad stuff. The messes you make, I'll redeem those. I'll fix those and I'll make them good. And always remember that every gift has a giver. One of the greatest mistakes we make is we begin to love the gift more than the one who gave it. Always, always remember that. Verse 28, John goes on. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. 
John's saying, I don't know why you guys are being weird about this. I've told you the whole time, I'm not the Christ. It's not me. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Do you remember when John the Baptist first met Jesus? When John the Baptist first met Jesus, they were both in utero. John was inside the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, that Jesus is inside the womb of Mary. And it tells us in Luke chapter 1 in the Bible that when Mary came to visit Elizabeth, John the Baptist inside her leapt for joy at the nearness of Jesus. Around 30 years later, they're both grown men, and John says he's still overjoyed by the nearness of Jesus. That's where his joy comes from. And wedding custom at the time dictated that it was the best man who, who's called the friend of the bridegroom who would do things like invite guests to the wedding, handle the major preparations, and, and finally upon the, the completion of the wedding, he would sort of escort the couple into their bridal chamber. A little weird. I don't know. I guess he'd high-five his bro and then close the door sort of behind him. And, uh, and then the bridegroom would yell out from inside the room basically something along the lines of it's all good. It's all good. Everything looks great. You've handled everything. You've fulfilled your job. Mission accomplished. Well done. And when the friend of the bridegroom heard that, that meant his task was completed. And he was filled with joy because he had handled the most important event in his best friend's life well. And that's where the joy came from. John's telling his disciples, guys, that's what's going on here. He says, my job is done. And he's full of joy because he's hearing the voice of Jesus saying, good job, good job, you did it, you finished. And whether you're a baby Christian like John in the, in the womb of Elizabeth or a seasoned saint like John at the height of his ministry in the wilderness, you're going to find your fulfillment in doing what God put you on the earth to do. And you're going to find your joy from the sound of Jesus' voice and his nearness. You know, everyone who became a follower of Jesus after his death and resurrection is part of the body of Christ, the the church. And the church is going to spend eternity with Jesus when the church reaches the presence of God one day. And in Scripture, when, when we're in the presence of God, it begins to refer to the church as the bride of Christ. It refers to us as the bride of Christ. The idea being Jesus is the bridegroom, and, and one day Jesus and the church, everyone who's believed in him is going to be brought together for eternity in an intimate, amazing, everlasting way. And John points out the fact that the bridegroom, Jesus, has the bride, the church. In other words, and this is on your outline too, the church belongs to Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. And we could do a whole sermon about this. But never forget, the church belongs to Jesus. And the ultimate destiny of the church is to be the bride of Christ and spend eternity with him. The ultimate destiny of the church is not to be the greatest social agent in the world, the greatest community, the greatest social network. The ultimate destiny of the church is to be the bride of Christ. And above everything else, we always want to remember that. That's what the church is about, belonging to Jesus. A small point of interest is that John identifies himself as a friend of the bridegroom. Did you notice that? Meaning he's not the bridegroom and he's not the bride. So if the bride is the church... Why isn't John a part of it? Why does he identify himself as somebody different? 
Remember what we said before, John is actually the last Old Testament prophet, and he's going to die before Jesus' death and resurrection. He's not actually a part of the church. The church refers to everyone who became a believer after Jesus' death and resurrection. So if you want to know what happened to Old Testament believers, another shameless plug here. I actually blogged about it. It's on our website on December 19th. It's a total bunny trail that I'd love to get into, but we just don't have time today. But you can read about what happened to every Old Testament believer on our website. And we're going to keep moving on, but it's just an interesting little aside. And then John delivers one of the simplest, purest statements in all of Scripture. It's not only that, but it's the greatest truth about the ultimate reality of everything. It's not simply a wish or a hope, but it's the inevitable truth. This is John 3.30. This should be underlined in your Bibles. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's not about me. It's not about me. And I was just as shocked as you are to learn that, by the way. John had a, he had a deep enough relationship with God to understand that the story unfolding across space and time and history is not the story of John the Baptist. It's the story of Jesus. The entire universe revolves around Jesus. This is not the story of your life or my life. This is the story of God, and we're invited into it. John had spent enough time with God to understand that God is going to become greater and greater. It is inevitable. He is unstoppable. He's going from glory to glory. John's not just saying that he's hoping this is what will happen. He's saying this is what must happen with a degree of inevitability that can be compared to the tide coming in and out or the force of gravity. It's a universal law. God will increase. He must increase. He must. If you were with us last time, there's three big musts that you see in John chapter 3. The first one is when Jesus tells Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And that's the must for the sinner. The sinner must be born again. The second must we give is when Jesus talks about Moses and the bronze serpent in the desert. Again, if you missed that message, you can listen online. And Jesus says, the son of man, speaking of himself, must be lifted up. And that's the must of the Savior. The Son must be lifted up. He must die. And then the third must we see right here, and this is the must of the servant. I must decrease. He must increase. That's the must of the servant. The Bible says that at the end of time, every knee is going to bow before God. Every tongue is going to confess he's God. There's going to be a moment when God just says, here I am. There's not going to be the possibility for anyone to say, I don't believe in you. Because he's right there. God says when that happens, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to say, you're God. Every tongue is going to confess it. And on that day, you and I will either be shocked that this wasn't all about us. Or we'll be overjoyed that it was all about Jesus and his bride. And that includes us. Don't miss this. John is losing his fame, his ministry, his job, his disciples, his influence, his platform. Everything. That season's coming to a close, and we're going to find out it's ultimately going to come to a serious close with John being executed. But John's not bitter. He's not complaining. He's not angry. Because he's connected enough to God to know that God is doing something, and he can, he can feel it. 
That's why he says he hears the voice of the bridegroom. He's saying, listen, God, God is in this. And John is okay with losing everything because he understands he's playing a part in God's story. This isn't John's story. This is God's story. And this is the same testimony you hear from believers who are martyred for their faith, killed for their faith, tortured for their faith, imprisoned for their faith. Their testimony is almost always the same. Always the same when you read about it. It's, yes, I'm being tortured. Yes, I'm being persecuted. Yes, I've lost everything. Yes, I'm suffering, and yes, it's hard. But I hear the voice of the bridegroom saying, well done. And so my joy is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You can put this on your outline. Real joy and fulfillment come from the nearness of Jesus. Real joy and fulfillment come from the nearness of Jesus. John's words would prove to be prophetic in a way that he wasn't even aware of at the time as he would be joining the wedding feast in heaven sooner than he knew. It's very easy for us to buy into the lie that our lives are all about our story. We want to believe this because we're all naturally selfish. I'm sorry if that's the first time you're hearing this, but we're all naturally selfish. We want to believe that we're the center of the story. The problem is, here's the problem, as sweet as it sounds, we're left with no answers when life doesn't work out. And we get bitter at God because we're saying, God, this is, this is my story and my story's going wrong. Fix it. Fix it. And there's no answers when the story's all about us. And here's what I mean. If John had believed that the story was all about him, his response would have been something like this. It even sounds good. He would have said, yeah, we're losing our ministry, but I'm sure it's only so that God can take us on to something greater. Or, you, you know what? You know what, guys, disciples? Whenever God closes one door, he always opens another. Always opens another. Both of those statements would be true, but probably not in the way we'd like. God would take John on to something greater, and God would open another door through death. Through death. And I point that out because it's very, very easy for us to believe the things that we want to believe that the Bible never actually says. Jesus promises us peace, hope, joy, everlasting life, that he will meet all our needs. He'll be everything we need. But he never, never promises it'll be easy. Ever. Nobody can accuse him of false advertising. He says, listen, even when it's hard, I'm with you. Even when things go wrong, I can redeem broken things. Even when the bottom falls out, you can still have peace and joy. I'll still be with you. I won't leave. That's the promise of God. Not that he'll turn earth into heaven while we're here, but that he has heaven waiting for us and he's with us while we're here. That's the promise of God. But if we believe the story's all about us, we'll get bitter and we'll get angry when it doesn't work out. When it doesn't work out. John is the picture for us of what it means to find your joy and peace and fulfillment in making your life all about Jesus. John discovered the joy that comes from being written into God's story because being a background character in the story of Jesus is a far greater role than starring in your own story. Let me say that again. Being a background character in the story of Jesus is a far greater role than starring in your own story. 
the plot line of Jesus' story. The script is John 3.30. This is the script. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, the Father's greatest desire for you and I is that we would become more like His begotten Son, Jesus. And when your life is centered on your story, you'll always be asking the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Even when God wants us to do something, we we sort of buy into this idea of, well, if God's asking me to do something, it must be for my benefit. I mean, heaven forbid it's for the benefit of somebody else. Heaven forbid that it's just playing a part in the story of God for making him more famous. Even with God, we want to buy into the idea of there must be something in it for me, right? Must must be something in it for me, more than everlasting life and a relationship with God. You know, what's in it for me? Serve my wife and kids, what's what's in it for me? Deal honestly with people in my business, well, what's in it for me? Live generously, put God first in my finances, what's, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Rise early in the morning to invest in my relationship with God, what's, what's, what's in it for me? So different when you realize that it's not about you. There's only Jesus and it all revolves around him. All of it. What's in it for you and I is the opportunity to become more like Jesus and build our lives around the truth instead of a lie. And the truth is that Jesus is increasing right now. Everything that's happening across the universe, across history, is going to arrive at the exact point he wants it to because it all revolves around him. And so we can either live our lives around the childish and delusional lie that it's all about us, it's all about us, or we can wake up to the truth that it's all about Jesus. And when you understand that, it'll it'll turn the way you see the world upside down. John was losing everything, but because he was in God's will, losing everything was the greatest and most successful thing he could have been doing during that season of his life. Do you realize that if John was alive today and this were happening, There'd be many Christians who'd look on and say, listen, you must not be walking with God. Because if you were walking with Jesus, everything would be going great. Your ministry would be flourishing. But, you know, people, people are fleeing from your ministry. What's, what's the unconfessed sin going on here? God must not want to bless you. But we know John is perfectly in the will of God, losing everything. Losing everything. Just like Job in the Old Testament. This is, John's losing everything. Everyone's leaving him, going to Jesus now. And he's overjoyed by it. And it's exactly what is supposed to take place. Don't miss this. Obedience to Jesus is success. Obedience to Jesus is success. And it's the only success that actually matters. What that looks like is irrelevant. What I mean is for one person, obedience to Jesus is going to cause them to have a lot of resources, a lot of money that God asked them to steward for another person. Obedience to Jesus is going to look like giving up everything and moving to some God-forsaken country to take care of a few people. Obedience to Jesus is success, regardless of what it looks like. And it's going to look different for different people. What it feels like is irrelevant. What it feels like is irrelevant. There's going to be times where being obedient to Jesus is going to cause your mind to think, man, I feel like such a loser. Cost me that promotion. Gave that up. I'm alone on New Year's Eve. Obedience to Jesus doesn't feel very successful sometimes. But it is. 
It's the only real success, even when it doesn't feel like it. Anytime we follow Jesus and let him be our Lord and master, we are succeeding in the only way that actually matters. One day we're gonna hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That moment, that moment, everything you've ever given up for Jesus is gonna seem like nothing, like nothing. There's only one kind of success that matters and it's obedience to Jesus. You know, one day we're gonna leave this earth, every single one of us, and every other success we've had is gonna stay here. Every other success we've had is going to stay here. Aside from the success we had in obeying Jesus. Everything else is gonna stay here. It's a good thing to stop every now and then and ask yourself, what's gonna go with me to heaven? What's gonna go with me? You know, am I going to be like, where's my clothes? <laughs> they have like nothing. And there's going to be other people who many people looked at and thought, man, what a, what a loser. No success in life. They're going to show up in heaven rich. I'm telling you, we are not prepared for the flip that is going to happen in eternity. There are going to be people we think were enormous successes who will end up having accomplished very little. And there's going to be people who we look at and say, man, they just didn't seem to do much, but they did exactly what God wanted them to do. We're going to be blown away when everything is revealed for what it really, really is. My plea to you is this, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Hearing well done from God is a lot better than hearing well done from other people. Because the well done you get from God is going to last forever. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Maybe there's a relationship that you chose not to engage in because you knew it wasn't God's will for you. Maybe there's a relationship you had to end because you knew it wasn't God's will for you. And maybe there's a relationship you didn't quit because you knew it was God's will for you. All those things can be looked at as failures. They can feel like failures. But when it's all about Jesus, those can be moments of great, great success. Maybe following Jesus has cost you a promotion or a job or putting God first in your finances has meant you've had to delay a major purchase. Maybe Jesus completely wrecked your own plans for your life and you find yourself starting over at an age where you're not supposed to be starting over. These things can all feel like failure in the moment. But these are the greatest successes you can ever have because the voice of the bridegroom Jesus is saying, well done, well done, you've, ch- you've chosen wisely, you've chosen wisely. To be a Christian and follow Jesus, to be his disciple means that you want to be like him, you want to be with him, you want to be in his story, his story, the only story that matters, that's what motivates us, it's not what's in it for me, it's living in Jesus' story so you get to hear well done and that's where your joy comes from. Even if your part is excited crowd member number 27, you know? Being that in the movie of Jesus is a lot better than the movie of your life. I promise, I promise, and my life. I'm not speaking down to you. But I believe that this portion of Scripture is so timely for our first message of a new year. Everybody's thinking about what they want to change about themselves. And so how do we, how do we apply this? I just want to stop and point out a few things Well, first off, I think it's wise to ask the question, is there anything that I know God is calling me to do that I'm not doing? 
Is there anything God is calling me to do that I'm not doing? If you're in the movie, the story of Jesus' life, and the director's saying you need to go stand over there, you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. Maybe the Holy Spirit just needs to remind you, this, this is not your movie. This is not your movie. This is Jesus' movie. He's the star. It's about him. Go to your mark. Go to your mark. Obey. Do what he's asked you to do. Be a part of his incredible, incredible story. But maybe you're putting it off because it wouldn't make sense if this was about you. But it's not about you. If that's you, change today. Change today. You might have more fun right now, you think, by making yourself the star, but your life is meaningless. It's meaningless. It's meaningless without God. So if you need to change, change today. Secondly, if you're in the place where you've been making decisions in your life that are centered on Jesus, but if you're honest, there's just no joy. There's no joy. It's just religion. I want to ask you to do this, to just honestly assess your life and ask the question, am am I creating space in my life to hear the voice of Jesus? Because if you're following him, if you're pursuing him, he is proud of you and he's telling you that. He's speaking to you, but, but maybe you're just not listening or maybe there's no time in your day when you just stop and pray and pour out your heart to God and say, maybe your honest prayer is, God, this sucks. This just sucks right now, this part of my life. And if you would share that with God, you would hear him say back, I know, it's not always going to be like this. And I'm so proud of you. And for some of you, hearing that is exactly what you need. And you just need to start building some space into your everyday life to hear from God. And for the third application, write this down. The more I'm occupied with Christ, the less I'm occupied with myself. The more I'm occupied with Christ, the less I'm occupied with myself. I I had this training one time that I went to on, on worship leading. And the idea was basically, it was a training for worship pastors on on how to get your team to be more involved when they're up front leading people on stage. Because I don't know if you've ever been to a worship service before where the person leading or the people singing look terrified or just look like they really don't want to be there. And maybe they have their music stand and they're just glued to it the whole time. I've, I've seen this lots of times in churches and they're just singing, Amazing Grace. Ah, sweet. That's, that's what they're doing, and everybody's really awkward, and usually the song ends, and there's like a good 30 seconds of silence between songs. What a friend we have. So this is a major challenge for a lot of worship teams. Is how, how do you get your worship team to actually look like they actually want to be up there and, and have fun? And the biggest problem is you, you hear from people who do that. What you hear is when you're like, hey, man, you, you, need, you need to move or clap or smile or something. Usually what you hear is like, you know, I just think it's not about me. It's, it's all about Jesus, and I don't want to draw attention to myself. And you miss the fact that you're, you're drawing all the attention to yourself by doing that. The truth is you're not being humble. You're the only thing on your mind. You're only thinking about yourself. You're like, oh, this is how I feel. I don't feel worthy. I don't feel useful. I don't feel like God could use me. And you're saying that makes you humble when the truth is all you're doing is thinking about yourself. Your mind is always on you. If you were thinking about other people, you'd do what benefits other people and ignore how you feel about it. This truth just absolutely blew, blew my mind. 
blew my mind. Changed the worship team I was leading when I shared that with him. It's like, I, I just don't think it's humble. I don't want to hear it. You know what's humble? Putting other people first. Other people don't want to see you miserable. They want to see you smile so they can be happy too, okay? Oh, okay, okay, okay. We do the, the same thing all the time. The key to success as a believer in Jesus is understanding that it's not about what you think or feel at the moment. It's about Jesus, and it's about what he says. As soon as we say, I'm just not sure I can do that, we've made it about us. As soon as we say, I just don't think God could use me, God says, thank you, but your opinion's really irrelevant. I'm going to use you. But I just don't think, I don't care what you think. I'm going to use you. I want to use you. I can use you. I'm a better judge of you than you are. As soon as we say, I, I, I'd obey, but it just seems impossible. We, we, we've made it about us. We've made it about us. And the more occupied I am with Jesus, the less occupied I'll be with myself. The only thing we're called to do is trust and obey Jesus. Wake up every day and live the life he's calling you to live that day. That's it. As nicely as I can say this, if you feel unqualified, that's irrelevant. If you feel unworthy, that's irrelevant. It's not really your call. It's God's call. If God decides he wants to use you, he will use you. When you don't believe that, here's what we're saying. We're saying, I think my inadequacies are more powerful than God. I think my limitations, my shortcomings are more powerful than God. He can still the storm and he can part the ocean, but he can't use me because I'm that important. <laughs> I'm his greatest challenge. He can, he can use you. He can use you. And even though everything in you might say, I, I can't do that. God can't use me. Just remember, uh, that's irrelevant. He's God. He says in Scripture, he says, listen, if I wanted good worship and I didn't get it from you, I'd just make the rocks do it. Like four-part boys to men harmony coming out of a cluster of rocks. God's like, I, I I'm not waiting for you to become something awesome before I use you or work in your life. I'm waiting for you to say yes. That's the only barrier here. You just need to say yes. It's not about us. What a verse John 3.30 is. It's the mission of the Christian life in just a few words. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's go on. Verse 31 It says, He who comes from above, speaking of Jesus, he is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. John himself and all other people. He who comes from heaven is above all. John is just saying there, there's no comparison between me and Jesus. He came from heaven. I came from the earth. When he speaks, he's speaking about heavenly things. Even when I speak, I'm speaking about earthly things with my earthly limitations. He goes on and he says, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He's saying Jesus didn't speak theoretically. He spoke experientially. Jesus was there when every single event in history took place. He was there. Garden of Eden, he was there. Noah and the flood, he was there. Moses and the bronze serpent in the desert, he was there. Jesus didn't teach from secondhand information. He spoke from firsthand witness. And the overwhelming majority of people, it tells us, didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. Verse 33, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. 
It says those who believe in Jesus are the evidence that he's true. Look at what he's doing in their lives. Verse 34, for he whom God, the Father, has sent, Jesus, speaks the words of God, the Father. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. Up, up until this point, everyone in the Old Testament who God used had a measure of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus comes along as the first fully, completely, totally Spirit-filled person. No limitation, full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given, you want to underline this, all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has, you're going to want to underline the word has, has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Here it is again in black and white. Jesus is the center of everything. The Father has given all things into his hand. Some things, a few things, most things, all things. All things are in the hands of Jesus. And notice that in verse 36, it says, present tense, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Not future tense, will have, but has. Has it right now. Every disciple of Jesus possesses everlasting or eternal life right now. Right now. Your body will decay, but the good news is there's a new, better one waiting for you in eternity. There's an upgrade coming, but your spirit has eternal life right now. Here's why it's so important to understand that. Your spirit is going to live forever. And when you really get that, you begin to understand that this earth is not our home. It's not our home. We become so much more clingy, so much more focused on ourselves when we believe that this life is all that we have. Everything has to come together here when we believe this is all we have has to come together here or I've missed my chance when you understand that you have eternal life it's okay when it doesn't all work out there are things we long for hope for and God wants to be good to us but there are some things that won't work out but when you understand that you have eternal life you're able to say that's that's okay this is just the beginning of the story it doesn't all have to come together here because i'm going somewhere where it all comes together it all comes together everlasting life starting right now notice as well that believe and not believe are contrasted as both being active and not passive this is important because it's saying that unbelief is as much an active state as belief Jesus isn't saying to believe is a verb, it's active, but to not believe is a passive state of being. It's to do nothing. Jesus says, no, listen, not believing is as much a conscious decision as believing. They're both active, and those are the only two options. Everyone's in one of those two places. In our last study, we saw Jesus explain to Nicodemus that people do not come into the light of Jesus because ultimately they prefer the darkness. They prefer the darkness. Everybody is making a choice right now. Depending on what side of this you're on, it's either a glorious or a terrifying truth that everyone who believes in Jesus has everlasting life and everyone who doesn't has God's wrath and will one day receive it. That, that's a serious, serious statement. There's a reason we don't use wrath in most of our conversations. 
It's a really, really serious word. You know, on, on, on Friday, I read about a, a horrific crime that took place in a, in a small town in the States. And, and what made it even worse is it was swept under the rug. Um, there was a family member who was a senator who had the whole thing disappear. There weren't even charges filed. This guy was very popular in his high school. He got away with what he did. And, and the story's starting to come out, and people are, are rightfully outraged when they find out about it. I know I was. Why is it? Why is it that we're outraged about something that has nothing to do with us? Many of you have heard me share this before, but I want to share it because when we hear wrath, many of us mistakenly start thinking, that's mean of God. That's mean of God. How, what, a, what a cruel, unkind God. And I want to help you to understand that you and I understand and operate in wrath as well. So where does this hunger for justice come from for a person we've never met? But we just have this hunger. Something in us says, this is wrong. This should be right. There should be consequences. Justice is being miscarried. There should be justice. What is it that makes us say this? I really believe it's because we're made in the image of God and God is a God of justice. He must have it just the way we must have it. We're the only creatures in the world that crave justice. There's no animals that get together to enact justice. You know, two animals get into a fight and one of the deer loses a horn. The other deer don't get together and say, listen, horn for a horn, right? We got to take this other guy's. It doesn't happen ever, you know, although it would be the greatest documentary ever if that happened. I'm seeing it in my head right now, but I got to stay focused. It's because we're made in the uh, we're made in the image of God and we want justice when somebody has done something wrong in our judgment, right? In our judgment. And our judgment is based upon how good we are collectively as a group of people. When we agree that something is unacceptable, we generally make it criminal. And that's also why we don't make the things that we all do criminal. That's why all lying is not a crime. That's why this situation never happens, you know. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Liar, burn him. There's a reason that's not a crime, because we all do it. It's not an innocent offense because it's not a lie. It's an innocent offense because we all do it. And we're like, yeah, we all do it. Can't really prosecute people for that. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to be punished. But we have things where we're like, but I'm pretty sure I can not accidentally murder someone. Pretty sure I can do that. So let's make that unacceptable. Let's make that part of the law. So we come up with the standard of justice based upon how good we are. And we feel totally justified in it. I mean, any, any of us feel like a giant hypocrite right now saying that murderers should receive justice? Any of us are like, man, I don't know about that. We should let that stuff go. None of us are thinking that. So there's God, and he has his standard of justice, and it's based upon how good he is. How good is he? He's perfect. He's perfect. So what is the standard of justice God is entitled to? Just like we're entitled. He's entitled to perfection as his standard. That's his standard. That's not unfair. He's using the same logic we use all the time in every country in the world with our justice system. So when we violate one of God's laws because the standard is perfection, we've blown it, we deserve justice, that justice is simply wrath. It's wrath. We deserve that. And on the cross, what happened is Jesus took that wrath instead of us. He took that wrath instead of us. God's justice was satisfied when Jesus took the punishment for our past, present, and future sins. But we have to choose to accept Jesus as our substitute. 
we have to choose to say, yes, it's true. I am guilty. I am guilty. But Jesus took my place on the cross. He took my place. He took my punishment. If we make that choice, we have everlasting life. But if we decline Jesus as our substitute, then we're essentially saying, no, I want to take this to court. I want to take this to court. Let's argue it out. You know, and what happens, I don't think this is what happens, is God's just like, okay. The prosecution would like to play the tape from the last 20 minutes. That's all they'd have to do. That's all, that's all they'd have to do, right? Yeah, they cussed in their mind 14 times in the last 20 minutes, lusted three times, coveted four times, you know. 20 minutes probably, you know, for most of us. Guilty. 37 counts in the last 20 minutes. His standard is perfection. You're, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You do not want to take your case to court with God. The more you read the Bible, the more you're going to discover that God will never judge us for being caught in the quicksand of sin. He won't judge us for that. What he will judge us for is declining the nail-pierced hand of Jesus that offers to pull us out. That's what it's all going to come down to. God's going to say, I, I know you were caught in that sin. I know you were guilty. But my son died so that he could pull you out, and you said, no, thank you. And when you do that, you're trampling on the blood that he spilled on the cross. Every single one of us, I think, would say, that's justifiable wrath from God. God says, listen, I, so that I could pull you out of that, so that you could go free, I gave the life of my son. And you spit on him and trample on his sacrifice. That get, gets God angry. And I think that's justifiable. And that's the wrath that is waiting for every person who says, no, thank you. I don't need it. I don't need it. Shortly after this conversation that John has with his disciples, he would be arrested and held in prison until his execution. And I am confident that John was full of joy all the way up to the end. Not a, not a shallow circumstantial joy, but the type of joy that cannot be stolen because it comes from hearing the voice of Jesus say, well done. Well done. Good job. Good job. So we're going to close with this. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, you need, you need to. You need to. You must. It's your big must today. You must give your life to Jesus. Don't delay for a second. Second thing I want you to ask is, is there anything that you know God's calling you to do that you're not doing? Have you bought into the lie that this is really your movie? not God's movie. God's saying, just take your mark. Take your mark. There's so much more meaning in living for Jesus in every area of your life than living for yourself. Thirdly, are, are you creating space in your life so that you can hear the voice of Jesus? Man, if following him is a burden, pour out your heart to God and give him a chance to respond. You're going to receive that joy. I'm not talking about the joy like everything's fine, happy, clappy. I'm talking about the joy that is deep within you that says everything is good. It's well with my soul. I'm good. And then finally, are you more occupied with Jesus or with yourself? Are you telling God that he can't use you, he can't do something in your life because he doesn't know your junk? He doesn't know your limitations, your issues. 
would you just tell God in this coming time, God, I don't know how you can do it, but I know you can do anything. And I know that my life fits in the category of anything. That's all he's asking you to believe. With men, some things are impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. Nothing's impossible. 